0: good evening. Uh, Before I begin tonight, I wanted to put in a little plug for the Ray Vanderlyn weekend, first week in November. Uh, I got to spend a couple weeks with him in Israel, and it completely changed my life. I really got the sense that if I had been one of the disciples of Jesus, I would have had a very similar experience as I did with him, because he has such a thorough knowledge of the Old and New Testaments and how the two fit together, and so I really feel it would change your life. It's a Friday night, Saturday, includes a meal, and then uh, he'll be again in the two services on Sunday. And the two morning services, by the way, are going to be a different talks, the two hours. I didn't tell the other two services that in case everyone showed up for both of them. But I, I think you'd want to go to that. Why don't we take a minute and pray before we look into our subject tonight. Father, we do acknowledge that you're the one that gives us the very breath of life. You are the source of life. and And you're also the source of eternal life through your son, Jesus. And we're grateful for that. We ask you, Lord, to speak life into us tonight and give us understanding. Help us to see your wonderful and amazing plan for our lives through your son, Jesus. We pray. Amen. I've had uh, a couple of occasions of doing something that's well more than a couple. To do something that was a little bit unusual. I've done uh, outdoor preaching on a few occasions now. I don't know if you've seen that before, but what I'd liken it to is what I think the Apostle Paul may have done if he had uh, gone into a city and there were no synagogues there, he would go to where the people were gathered and he would begin to just preach the good news about Jesus. And... Um, in 1982, I had the first opportunity to do that. I was asked to co-lead a group of college students from Ohio State University, about 40 to 50 of them. And we were taking a bus down to uh, the University of Florida. And we were going to spend our spring break on that campus sharing the gospel with college students. And we were cooperating with a pastor down there and some other leaders. And while we were there, they decided one of the days that they wanted to do this outdoor preaching on the campus. And so we showed up at the University of Florida campus. Of course, the Gators need Jesus. And um, we kind of gathered around, and then one by one, different ones spoke. You know, a couple of the pastors, some of the other leaders in the church. I'd never done it before, but as I was standing there in this crowd, I thought, I bet you they're going to ask me to do this. And the thought of it just kind of scared me to death. Like, I don't, I've do not i never done this before, but they, they knew I was one of the leaders of the group, a bunch of Ohio State students, and they figured I probably would be willing to do it. And sure enough, after about four or five people had spoken, someone came up to me and said, do you mind going next? And I think the honest answer is yes. I would mind, but... I said, I'm willing because as I had thought about it and while others were speaking and I watched what they were doing, I realized I could do really a verbal version of the little gospel track called The Four Spiritual Laws. I could just talk about how God loves us and has a plan for our lives and how God sent his son to be our savior and if we put our trust in him, we'd have eternal life. And so I figured I could kind of expand that a little bit and I'd do the best I could and so it was my turn. And And by now, I don't remember how many college students there were, but we had brought a group of 40 or 50, and then the preaching had drawn students, and so it was a huge crowd, and they were all in a big circle. And I began to speak, and almost as soon as I began, a guy appeared completely opposite of the circle from me, and he stood out. He was massive. He was a guy with his shirt off, he looked like one big muscle. He wasn't particularly tall, but he was scary looking. And he had this heavy chain wrapped around his neck. I mean, not a, not a little tiny, thin bicycle chain. It was a thick, heavy chain draped around his neck, and he started walking toward me, slowly, deliberately, heading my direction. It's like, why didn't you bother the other guys? He gets to about the middle of the circle, and then he began to flex his muscles and began to breathe in and out. He's going, <gasps> and walking step by step. And I'm thinking, what's this guy going to do, you know? And about now, I'm, I'm praying, Lord, you've got to help me keep on course here, <laughs> you know? I don't know how I can keep going. He got closer and closer and closer, and finally, he was within three feet of me. He looked me directly in the eyes, and then he walked away, which is kind of weird and so I I finished talking about five minutes after that someone replaced me I didn't think much of it that afternoon we had paired up as college students to go to an apartment complex where students were about three miles from the campus on this occasion we were knocking on doors and we were talking with college students about faith we took a short survey and then at the end of the survey, we trans in, into, transitioned into the question, would you like to know for sure what the Bible has to say about how a person can get right with God? How you can know for sure you're going to have. It. And, that, and that's how we were approaching this. And I came across a door that was open just a little bit. I could smell that somebody in there was smoking weed. And I, I wondered, should I pass this door or should I knock on it? And I decided to knock on the door. At first no one came and I knocked a little louder and then all of a sudden this guy appears and I began my spiel. I said, I'm Tim Herring, I'm, I'm from Columbus, Ohio with a bunch of uh, OSU students and, and we're taking a survey and he interrupted me and he said, I know who you are. He said, I know who you are. And I thought, how could anybody know who I am? I've never been to Gainesville, Florida. And he said, you're one of those preachers. I was watching when you were speaking and that big guy walked up to you. Now, do you not want to know who I am? I said, sure. He said, I'm one of the guys that gives you guys a hard time. He said, I love to heckle the people that come and talk about Jesus on this campus. And then the guy's tone changed. And he said, I just have one question for you. I want to know where you got the courage to do what you did today. You see, I think this whole incident about this guy was a divine thing because it caused everyone to watch my face and to watch what happened, and God gave the grace in that situation. Of course, the answer is God gave the grace, but I also mentioned that, you know, I I had the courage because I'm confident that the message is true. The only reason someone would preach on a campus like that is either that they're crazy, which could be possible, or... They're so sure what they're talking about is the truth. And I said, for me, it's the latter. And then I began to talk with him a little bit, found out he was Jewish. And as soon as I found out, I began to talk with him about the Old Testament sacrificial system. I said, let me ask you, are you familiar with your own background, the Old Testament, how they used to sacrifice animals? He said, yeah. I said, well, I want to ask you a question. Why on earth... Did God require the Israelites to kill an animal, to shed that beautiful, innocent blood? It seems a little cruel. Why did God make them do it? What about that helps? And he said, I don't know. I guess I've never thought about that before. And then I said, do you mind if I tell you from a Christian perspective? He said, sure, go ahead. And I said, when Jesus began his public ministry, John the Baptist, a prophet, The first thing John said was, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I said how back in the book of Genesis, you know, when God told Adam and Eve, the day you eat from that that tree, you will die. Spiritually, physically, even eternally, you'll die. But God cared about people too much. And so immediately you find in Genesis this sacrificial system. And what was happening there is that they'd bring the animal and they'd acknowledge their, their sin on that animal. And it's like a transference would take place. It's, like, it's as if their sin went on the animal and then they killed it. And it was dying in their place and for their sin so they could live. It died so they could live. Jesus shows up on the scene. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I said, you know, it's impossible for the blood of animals to erase human sin. No, the sacrifice needs to be a person. And how God sent his son into the world to take on flesh and blood so that he could die. The sinless one could go on a cross and die in our place and for our sin. And he was that lamb. All those sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointing to that day when God would send his own son to be our sacrifice and what God is looking for is that we put our trust in Jesus. And as I was talking, the guy began to cry. And um, suddenly his roommate shows up. Are you still talking to this idiot? And this guy got kind of mad at his roommate. He, he said, don't you call him that. He's, he's, that's the truth. What he's saying is the truth. And then he looked at me and he said, I'll never give you guys a hard time again. I just didn't understand. And we talked a little bit more. But I believe that day, this young man came to faith in Jesus Christ. And I saw the finger of God all the way through it, that God cared so much for this guy to bring him at a certain place at a certain time to watch a certain odd thing happen so that there could be a divine appointment that would take place later so a guy could hear God's eternal story of how he wanted to send his son and save us from our sin. It's a remarkable thing now I begin with that because last week I I made the point that really when it comes to us getting right with God, it's not about what we do for God. It's about what he did for us, and the only response that he's looking for is for us to say yes by faith, to receive. And I get a little bothered sometimes when we have presentations of this good, beautiful gospel message that focus on what we're supposed to be doing for God when it's always been about what he did for us. Now today, I want to look at three stories that are found, all of them, in the Gospel of John, and they're stories that emphasize this idea that it's it's really just about faith in Christ. It is not about church attendance. It's not about being a good person. It's not about making a commitment to follow Jesus. It's not about baptism or any other religious symbol. It is simply about accepting God's payment on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. And these three stories all illustrate that. We won't spend much time on any of them, except I do want to mention that these three stories all have some of the same elements. All of them will identify that the problem that we're addressing tonight is sin. It's our sinfulness, our waywardness, that has put a gap between us and our Creator. That's the problem we're trying to to solve. Second, all of them will point out to some degree the identity of Jesus and what he came to do. And third, all of these stories will make the point that the way in which you receive this forgiveness of sin is simply faith. It's simply trust in Jesus Christ and nothing else. The first story I want to look at is the one I've already alluded to where Jesus is the Lamb of God. And I want to look at those early words in John chapter 1, where John the Baptist first encounters Jesus. And in verse 39, in the middle of the verse, we read, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who has surpassed me because he existed before me. Now let's stop. What is the problem that's being addressed here? Well, it, he calls him the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. The only way anyone will get to heaven is if their sin is taken away. If you go to heaven with a trace of your sin still on you, you you're disqualified. Heaven's a perfect place. And so we need someone that's going to take away our sin. And that's what it's said about Jesus. Behold the one who takes away our sin. And so that's the problem we're addressing What about the identity of this person, Jesus? Well, the words of John were kind of interesting. John said that that he was greater than he was. Jesus was greater than John because he existed before John. Now, a casual reading of that, you might not notice anything about it, except if you know the history, you know that John was born before Jesus John the Baptist was born about six months before Jesus was. So, who came first? John did. Second was Jesus, but John looks at Jesus and says, he's greater than me because he came before me. Well, how could Jesus have come before if he came after? Well, he's God. He's God. And a few verses later, John makes that clear in verse 34. I've seen and testified that he is the son of God which is a title of his deity, the Son of God, God the Son. Now, in calling him the Lamb of God, we see the work that he was going to do on the cross. We see that, you see, our faith is in in Jesus because of who he is and because of what he did, and that's the whole picture. God sent his Son, and because of who he is and what he did, we put our trust in him. So we find out that Jesus was God, the Son of God, and God the Son. We find out... That he came to take away the sin of the world, and then it says he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I don't know how John understood this, but he understood that Jesus had to die. What, what, what happened to the Lamb? The Lamb died. And so somehow John understood that Jesus had come to die for the sins of the world. It, it is the entire story. Now, how do we get this forgiveness of sin? Well, I would say it's by faith. In the Old Testament, again, if you look at the, the illustration John used, they, would, they had faith to believe that God's promise would be passed on to them that they would live if they brought this lamb and they confessed their sins on the head of this lamb and it died in their place and for their sin. The sacrifice didn't save them in the Old Testament. It's the faith that led them to bring it. They were trusting in a God who was providing the sacrifice so they could live. They trusted in a God who was providing the sacrifice so they could live. So they put their hands on that animal. They'd confess their sin, which is what is required. We've got to acknowledge our sin. And then they'd kill it. And it was dying in their place and for their sin. And, of course, it was pointing to Jesus. But there's nothing about the illustration that points to anything else. It's all about what he was going to do for us, not what we were to do for him. There's nothing about church attendance. There's nothing about being good. Those things come after. But they're not part of the equation of how we get right with God. It's simply about a Savior who died in our place and for our sin. The second example is a serpent on a pole. And once again, notice the presence of the different elements. We're going to see sin. We're going to see the identity of Jesus and what he came to do. We're going to see the requirement is faith. Now, this particular illustration comes from John chapter 3, and I alluded to it last week when Jesus had an encounter with a religious leader, a guy named Nicodemus. What's noteworthy about Nicodemus is if there were any person alive in the time of Christ, that the average person would think, has got it figured out spiritually, it would have been Nicodemus. If you ask the average person, who that you know of is certainly going to heaven when they die, Nicodemus was on the short list, if not at the top of the list. He was well-known, and and he had it together. But Jesus' words to this guy point to the problem. He looked at Nicodemus, and among his first words, he said, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're born anew, unless you're born from on high, you could translate it different ways. Unless you're born of God, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. You're not going there. Now, I don't know what that did to Nicodemus in terms of his world. He's a guy that thought he'd figured it out. But I want us to understand, if we don't understand sin, we won't turn to a savior. Jesus needed to point to this guy's deficiency. You need a spiritual rebirth. There's something defective about you. We call it sin. And that's the problem. Now, how do you fix it? Well, in John three 13, let's pick up Jesus' words. He said, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. That's the simplicity of it. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Now, the problem that he is, again, solving is a problem of sin, and this story bears that out. He talks about how, in the Old Testament, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. You remember that after 10 plagues and God did some amazing things. Moses led all these people out of Egypt into into this wilderness area, and the people kept turning from God in different ways. They, they formed a calf, a golden calf. It was idolatry. But the biggest thing you read, if you read the story from the Old Testament, especially the book of Numbers, is that they complained and grumbled constantly. They complained and grumbled against Moses and against God. Instead of asking God to provide, instead of trusting in him, they complained And after this had happened, many times God became angry with the Israelites, and although I know we struggle to understand this, he sent serpents, vipers, poisonous snakes to bite the people, and it immediately got their attention. Now, it it illustrates this point, the wages of sin is death, the penalty of sin is death. And so the people began to to die. They were bitten, and they called out to Moses, we're sorry, we we blew it here, what do we do? And God gave Moses some specific instructions. He said, what I want you to do is get a pole, presumably made of wood, and I want you to get a bronze serpent, fashion a, a crude bronze snake. Bronze is, by the way, the metal of judgment in the Bible, and I want you to put it on a pole, and then if anyone's bitten, they just have to look at the pole. Now that's the illustration. Just as Moses lifted up the son of, or Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man shall be lifted up. I'm just at the point in this story making the point that it's about sin. It was addressing a problem of sin for the Israelites, and Jesus is pointing to Nicodemus's own sin through the illustration. What does Jesus say about himself to Nicodemus? Well, let's look at verse 13 again. He said, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. There are two things here that are huge. Number one, I don't have time to develop it, but he's making the point, I came from heaven, not earth. He's prophesying that he's going to return up to heaven because that's where he came from. So he says, no one's ever ascended into heaven like I'm about to do except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's saying he came from heaven. Now, think for a moment if I told you all, you all, of course, came from the earth, but I didn't. I came from heaven. What would I be saying? I don't know what Nicodemus did with this, but he's claiming to be God before this religious leader. But then he called himself the Son of Man. And that was a title for the Messiah in the Old Testament. It's a title that every Jewish person was familiar with. It's a title that uh, referred to a prophecy that was made by Daniel in the Old Testament, beginning in verse 13, where Daniel wrote, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, and was escorted before him. He, that one was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. I don't know what Jewish people to this day do with that Daniel prophecy. Like, who's this person that's being entered into, ushered into the very presence of God the Father and that they're going to rule forever and ever and ever? It would have to be, though, God, this person, in order to rule forever, in order to be someone before whom every person of every nation would bow. It immediately recalls in my mind those words of Jesus after he rose from the dead. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Therefore, go and make disciples. Jesus was claiming to be God. And what did he come to do? Well, again, the... The example, the example was just as the serpent was put up on a pole, so the Son of Man will be put up on a pole. He was prophesying the fact that he was going to die, hang on a tree. Now, Nicodemus didn't get it when he said it, but I, I'm sure that the moment he saw Jesus hanging on the tree, he said, that's what Jesus was talking about. The Son of God is hanging on a tree which gets us to the question, how do we get forgiveness of our sin? Well, if we go to the story again in Numbers chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. He recovered. What did they have to do to receive forgiveness from their sin in this story? How did they get healed? All they did was looked. God didn't say, well, I want you to promise not to grumble anymore. I want you to make a new commitment to me. I want to make sure you go to the tabernacle every week, need to be baptized, or anything else. All they did was looked, and they were healed. Now, I'm suggesting here today that we get right with God just by faith, looking at the one and to the one who hung in our place, the Son of God who died in our place and for our sin. And, of course, John was explicit about it here because as soon as he said the Son of Man's going to hang on the tree, the next verse is the most famous verse in the Bible for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's the whole story. Whoever looks to him by faith like they did in the Old Testament would experience forgiveness of sin. Third illustration is found in the very next chapter. It's living water. Jesus and his disciples were passing through a region called Samaria, which was a place that Jews usually didn't go because the Samaritans were Jewish people who had married Gentiles. And so... They, they were considered ones who defiled the Jewish heritage and therefore were spiritually corrupt. And so Jewish, the J- Jewish people despised the Samaritans. But Jesus had in mind an encounter with these people, and he cared about them. At a certain point, he and his disciples, they were walking through, and they came across a well. It wasn't just any well. It was Jacob's well, a, a well that had been dug by the patriarch Jacob It's a very significant well. And from that place, Jesus sent his disciples into one of the towns called Sychar to go get some food, and Jesus was alone when this encounter takes place, beginning in verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Dr. Wolvert of Dallas Theological Seminary explains her comments in this way. The normal prejudices of the day prohibited public conversation between men and women, between Jews and Samaritans, and especially between strangers. A Jewish rabbi would rather go thirsty than violate these properties, and yet Jesus says, would you get me a drink of water? She was she was. Surprised by it. But Jesus cared for her, and he begins to reveal who he is first. In the very next verse, John four ten, we read, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you'd ask him, and he'd give you living water. If you had any idea who you were talking to, you'd be asking me for water. Not the other way around, if you knew who I was, now, it raised a question in her mind. Well, just who are you? Verse 12, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself. Yes, he's greater than Jacob. In fact, before the story's done, she's going to come to understand that he's the, the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, and that he was the savior of the world. She's going to come to understand all that about him and that he's a prophet and everything else. Are you greater than Jacob? Yes. Now let's talk about this living water for a minute. In biblical times, living water was a reference to flowing water and it was water that was not stagnant. It was water that was clean and oftentimes they had religious ceremonies that required them to take these kind of these cleansing baths, and you do it in living water. And so you'd, have, you'd always do it in a river. That's why John baptized in a river. It had to be a flowing river. You know, confess your sins. It symbolized the washing away of sin. This is what she's being offered. This water, this living water, that's going to fulfill her spiritual thirst forever and wash away her sin. In verse 13, Jesus said, everyone who drinks from the water from this well here, this water, will get thirsty again. Whoever drinks from the water I give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I give him will become a well springing up within him for eternal life. Jesus, or Jesus is offering to give this woman eternal life. Now again, I think she's trying to process who exactly am I talking to? Of course, he's the Son of God and God the summit. Then the story takes an interesting twist. You read it for yourself, but Jesus said to her, Go get your husband. And in verse 17, we read, I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. I want to ask you the question, why on earth did Jesus bring up such a painful subject at this point? They were having such a nice conversation. I want to give you living water. Go get your husband. Oh, I don't have a husband. You're right about that. You've had five. And the guy you're living with now is not your husband. One of my sources indicates That the Greek construction, the way Jesus spoke of this with her indicated that the guy she was living with now was not only an illicit relationship in and of itself, but he was a married man. She was committing adultery. Why bring it up? Once again, I don't think we'll ever seek a savior if we don't see ourselves as sinful. Just like with Nicodemus, you must be born again or you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus needed to point to this woman's situation. We don't know about the brokenness of her life. I don't know all of her circumstances. Many have suggested, by the way, she came during the, the lunch hour, the noon hour, because that's when no one else would be there, that she was so ashamed. But Jesus did not come to make her ashamed. Jesus didn't come to embarrass her. He just understood that if I don't get to the heart of the matter, that you have a spiritual need, you can't experience spiritual cleansing. So he pointed to the sin. They talked a little bit more. And then the woman ran into town and she told the neighbors and other people, come meet someone who told me all about my life. And and then they responded. And in their response, we see the response that God wants of us. Look with me at um, verse 39. It says, now many Samaritans from that town, what? Believed in him because of what the woman said. That was the response. You put your trust in him. Are you going to believe him? Skipping to verse 42. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world now there's probably more that was said and done here to arrive at that conclusion but once again we see that the response that god is looking for is faith or belief that this encounter was to point out the identity of jesus and and then to help them understand that he's able to give eternal life and that he's the savior of the world and the response that god is looking for is faith Now, we've looked at three illustrations, a spotless lamb that came down from heaven that's going to die in our place and for our sin. We acknowledge our sin, and it dies in our place and for our sin. By faith, we place our hands, by faith, on Jesus, the, the lamb who died for us. By faith, we acknowledge I've sinned, and we trust his death to count for us. He died so you can live. The story of a serpent on a pole, Jesus hung on a cross so that whoever just looks at him by faith, who's been stung by the wages of sin, which is all of us, you just look upon the pole and they're healed. It's as simple as that. No other requirements. And third, Jesus is the eternal life-giving water that washes away our sin, the savior of the world, the one who came from On high and faith is again the requirement now I wanted to talk about this whole series because I feel like so many want to add so many things to the simplicity of the message this is again about what God did for us not what we do for him it's not about again making a commitment to follow him because you won't do it perfectly you know, it's not about promises to God. It's, it's not about church or being a good person because even though we can appear good, we all know we're bad too. We sin all the time. In fact, I think the reason people have trouble with accepting even the simplicity of this message is that they don't realize how sinful they were and are if, if people saw that we sin in our thoughts and our words and our deeds constantly, we would abandon all effort to think that somehow we could get right with God through our own effort. It's, it's hopeless. I want to close with an illustration that, that kind of shows what I, I don't know, it's the picture of the whole thing. If the question is how do sinful people bridge the gap between themselves and a holy God, how do, how do we get righteous enough to stand in the presence of a holy God, A lot of people think you do it in a similar way that someone might think in terms of swimming the ocean. Imagine that swimming across the ocean is a picture of people trying to get right with God through their own effort. The problem is that the ocean's kind of far away. A lousy swimmer would drown right away. An excellent swimmer might get 50 miles, 100 miles, 200 miles. I don't know how far someone can swim, But you'll both drown because God is holy and we're not, and the gap is too wide. We can't do it. So imagine for a moment a boat comes along, a a ship. It'd have to be a a major ship in an ocean. What would you do? Well, come on board. It's your only salvation. Here's the boat, jump in. But what we do, illustrating in this story anyway, what we tend to do is say, no, no, I'll hold on to the boat, but I'm going to flap over here too. I'm going to help. I'm gonna do my I'm gonna to contribute to my own salvation. You know what happened if you did that? You'd die. You'd die. It's not a combination effort. Just get in the boat. Just get in the boat. And yet we we in our pride think, well, I'm I'm gonna do it. You know, I wanna earn it, I wanna merit favor with God. It is called a gift. And it's received only through faith. And I just want us all to understand that. So some of you tonight, again, maybe need to put your trust in Jesus and say, I get it. I I, I do need a Savior. I know I sin. And today I put my trust in Jesus who died and rose again for me. Uh, For the rest of us, I just want us to have greater and greater clarity in terms of what it's about. It's about what our Savior did for us. And this produces a love for Jesus. When we realize what he did for us, we love Jesus. And then that's the thing. It's the spirit of God in us that begins to change us. Then we do commit ourselves to him. We do follow him. We do love him. We, we, but it it's, comes as a result of this faith and it's not a condition of our eternal salvation. Let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for the illustrations you've given us. Thank you for loving us so much to send your son. We acknowledge, O oh Lord, tonight that we need a savior. All of us have sinned. We all fall short of your glorious standard of right and wrong. We can't fix it. We can't clean ourselves up. But you love the world so much that you sent your son Jesus into this world to take on flesh and blood so that he could become that sacrifice for us, the one nailed to the pole, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we thank you, Lord, that when we put our trust in him, the one who deceit, uh, defeated both sin and death when he rose again from the dead, we received the gift of eternal life. We thank you for that tonight. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.